But hey, uh, turn, grab your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. Uh, I think it'll be really, really helpful each week as, as we look to the Scriptures. If you have your copy of Scripture, uh, it's really going to be helpful because we're going to point to some very specific uh, verses and be able to, uh, to kind of walk along together. Um, really encouraged to look uh, at a chapter today, at, at, a, at a piece of this story for, for uh, goodness, several weeks we've been looking uh, at the Ezra-Nehemiah narrative uh, history, this story of God's people as, as God's people in Israel, the remnant has returned out of Babylonian exile They've returned out of exile as prophesied. They have rebuilt, and at this point in, in Israel's history, the remnant has, has come together to, to rebuild not only the foundation, as we saw in Ezra 3, and, and, then, and then the temple itself, but now as part of Nehemiah's calling, his charge to, to rebuild the wall that surrounds the city of Jerusalem. And in the midst of this, it's not just a, it's not just a, a, a land and a city that is seeking to be renewed in a physical way, uh, God is seeking to continually work in the hearts of his people that they themselves would be renewed and seek to return to him and to follow the very law of God, to follow the teaching of uh, the law for, for their good, so they could understand, that they could know, that they could have this heart, this new heart that Ezekiel speaks of, uh, that, that Jeremiah prophesies of, these people would seek to follow the Lord truly. So today, uh, we're going to look into Nehemiah, uh, specifically Nehemiah chapter 5, uh, and this comes kind of on the back end of where we were last week uh, with chapter 4. So to, to to beyond Ezra to kind of catch you up with the, the Nehemiah plot thus far. And what we've seen is Nehemiah hears about uh, the desolation, the destruction, the ruin, specifically with regard to the wall that Jerusalem is in. Uh, and in the midst of this, he is heartbroken. Uh, he, he is devastated uh, at what his people are walking through. And he longs to return. He, he is in uh, Persia, specifically Susa, uh, at this time, and we, as we read in Nehemiah 1. But uh, working for the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, he has this longing, this desire to get back to be a part of restoring Israel, rebuilding the wall. He's cut to the heart. He longs to do this. And providentially, God has placed him as a cupbearer to the king. So he's in this unique place, uh, and we've seen this phrase throughout Ezra and Nehemiah that, that the good hand of my God was upon me. So God's good hand, God's providence is truly at work in this story. He's placed Nehemiah in this, in this incredible spot where he has the opportunity that few, hardly any have, to be able to grant uh, or to be able to ask something of the king, and the king grant that request. The king grants, grants the request. He's able to go back uh, on a specific timetable uh, with all the things that he needs to be able to help begin this wall-building process. Like in Ezra, we see that Nehemiah encounters a ton of opposition. There are people in every cardinal direction, as we talked about last week, north, south, east, and west, that are opposing what he and God's people are doing and rebuilding and reconstructing the wall around Jerusalem. So, so nobody is pleased with it. There, there's all this opposition, and yet Nehemiah remembers the Lord. And he charges the people with the responsibility to not fear, 
Don't fear those who are outside you. Instead, redirect, fear God in his grandeur, in his awesomeness, in his wonder, in all that he has done. And remember how he has delivered us as a people time and time again. And in light of that, let's fight together to protect who we are. So this is where we find ourselves, a wall uh, being constructed. Really incredible things are happening. And it's really important to point out in a, in a moment where, where it looks like things are going bad. Things are really, really going awesome. This is an incredible moment in the history of Israel because God's people are unified very, very deeply together. God's people are working for the common good of one another. This is a really beautiful moment in a history of God's people that is really kind of stained and kind of blotted with all of these missteps and all of these mistakes and all of these refusals to trust. There's this one shining moment kind of thing happening right here. And then you get into chapter 5 and things begin to look different. Here's the main thing about chapter 5 that, that's really uh, incredible about this, this story and the way it's constructed. This, this chapter 5 feels like an interruption. It feels like a part of the story that in a lot of ways doesn't really fit. You know, to this point, we've had, we've had return to the land, we've had temple reconstruction, wall reconstruction, all of these initiative-type, action-type moments and then Nehemiah 5 is just kind of, it really does kind of stick out like a sore thumb to some degree. It's about something vastly different than building the wall. But I think what we'll come to see today as we look into the scriptures is we'll see that, that Nehemiah 5 presents us with the heart of God's purpose for his people. The heart of God's purpose for his people in the midst of all this work. Um, we'll begin to see that this is, this is a different kind of story that's embedded in this story, uh, but it's incredibly appropriate and needed. So this is Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to read all 19 verses together so that we understand the context well and the story well, uh, and then we'll, then we'll move through it. All right, Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. If you have your Bible there before you or it's on the screen, it says this. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, uh, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. 
And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise, so he may be, so may he rather, be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land And all my servants were gathered there for work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense, and what that means is for him, for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people." Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, an incredible story, an incredible uh, thing that happens here in the midst of this reconstruction, in the midst of all that is happening for Nehemiah to lead God's people to step up into this place where he's, he's receiving uh, this, the, this desire to meet the needs of the people there, where he's longing to help them be protected, while he's longing to help construct the wall, while he's longing to be a picture uh, of, of true faithfulness and trust in the Lord to the nations around them, not just Israel and not just this remnant. Now we've got this thing that that happens where all of the sudden there's this famine and it's affecting the people. It's affecting the people in the land in Jerusalem. Now to this point, one of the most unique things about the Ezra and Nehemiah story is that there has been all of this opposition from other nations. So when he says, I think it's in verse 10, when he says, you know, our, our, uh, our, the taunts of the nations, our enemies, he's talking about all these people that have consistently, continually opposed this work and what he is doing. But look into verse 1, and you'll see something really unique. It says this, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against, and look at what it says, their Jewish brothers. So what we've seen thus far is opposition from these other nations, opposition from their enemies, the people of the land. But this is an indictment on the people of God from the people of God. Now we have disagreement within God's people, not just coming at them from without. Why? Look into verse 2 and you see that the people are hungry. There are many of them. They're hungry. They want to eat so they can stay alive. Look, they're co-Israelites, but it's obvious that, that, that there is a deep inequity here. There are some Israelites who are wealthy, and there are some who are not. And we're going to see exactly uh, how the not wealthy are very not wealthy uh, here in just a moment. Uh, we see that this trouble is arising because in verse 3 there's a famine in the land which leads to the reality that 
there are people that are borrowing money for taxes. So the historical context here is this, is that this land, although Nehemiah has been appointed by Artaxerxes to serve, as we find out in verse 14, that he, his title is he's the governor of this land. He's the governor. He's the one uh, that is the official that is administratively over all of this area within Judah. This is, his, this is under his kind of reign and his kind of dominion, but he still serves under the king. So here's the reality. All of, all of this land still belongs to Artaxerxes and Persia from, from, a, from a judicial standpoint. So they collect taxes on this land. So the people that are in Jerusalem, they have to pay tax. And here's the reality. They can't afford it, so they're borrowing money for taxes. So we've gone from seeing all these incredible, inspiring things, how Nehemiah not only, not only is called out to, to minister, he's called out uh, to push back against the destruction that's taking place in Jerusalem. It's not only that, but he goes and sees it for himself, and then he operates in such a way where he organizes people by their clans. Remember that in, in chapter 3 and chapter 4 where he organizes people and he places them at all these gates, at all of these places of weakness and vulnerability. He, all these incredible things that are happening through his leadership within the context of the, of the kingdom. And yet now there's all this famine and there's this economic uh, inequality. And look into verse 5. Look at what is said. The people say, now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. You look back into verse 3, and these, these folks have mortgaged away what they have in a season of famine to get grain, to get these things from others who have it. Not only have they mortgaged their stuff, but they're actually selling over members of family in order to stay alive themselves. Think about this. So you're talking about a people, this, this remnant, this people who has come from this deep place where they know what it means to be in slavery. The history of God's people is one in which they are well acquainted with slavery. They're redeemed from slavery in Egypt. And they're always being attacked by other nations. We see this in the Babylonian exile. Now, God hands them over into this place, but they are truly slaves in, these, in this moment. They, they don't have a land that is their own. They do not belong to themselves. Instead, these are the very people who should understand that, that slavery is terrible. We know that because we've experienced it firsthand. And what are they doing? They're selling their own people. They're selling Israelites to Israelites to live with, with temporal means. That's what is happening. And they see it themselves. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. This is verse 5. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. They recognize when they state that, that they are in slavery. They're even selling to one another. That they're right back where they started. That this is the age-old story, this is the same song, just a different verse kind of deal with regard to slavery. They see the problem, yet they're failing to see their selfishness that is the big picture issue. And here's the thing. We've seen all this opposition from the outside. We've seen Sambalot in this story as of last week and all the things that he's done to try to thwart 
what God is doing through Nehemiah and his people. All this opposition from the outside. But here is the big picture thought. What we see in this moment is that opposition doesn't merely come from the outside. For sinful people, opposition comes from within. We oppose and we hurt ourselves and one another when we don't obey the Lord. When we don't trust the Lord, we begin to experience the consequences of sin. They have serious issues with trusting the Lord, and they're seeking to meet their needs first rather than entrusting them to the Lord. And this is what the result is. Look at verse 6. This is Nehemiah. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. So his response, the way he responds to this is deep anger. Is deep anger. So this is likened unto what Ezra experiences in chapter 9 and chapter 10, where Ezra hears of the foreign wives that have been taken by the Israelites, all these people who are bringing in foreign gods and all of these idols and all of these things to be intermixed in the syncretous way, to be brought in to the life of God's people. And he's angry. So Nehemiah is angry like Ezra was angry. Here's what his anger is. His anger is at their disobedience to the law of God. They're in this place specifically because they have not followed the law. We get into verse 7 and 8 and we're going to see that much more specifically. But to kind of set this up so that we understand the premise from which Nehemiah is confronting God's people, the understanding that he's seeking to bring them, they're not following the law of God. Now, when, when I say law, you probably think of, of, of judicial law. You think of a set of, of rules, of stipulations, of things that, that must be adhered to, or there are negative consequences. In many ways, that is how truly the, the law of God, God God's, God's plan for life through the law works. But the reality is, if, if I were to show you what the Hebrew word for law is, it's really this, it's teaching. It's not just law in this judicial way where you fail to meet a standard. It's, it's a failure to understand and obey and live in the wisdom that God has given. God has given us teaching, instruction, wisdom into how to have life with him. And yet, God's people are not just missing the mark. They're not just failing to, 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 to see and to meet a standard. They're missing the very heart of God and the life that he has for them. It's not missing, just missing the standard. It's missing the heart of God who longs to give life to his people. Look into verse 7 and you see this. Nehemiah says, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you're exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. So, one, that, that took counsel piece is really important. That idea of taking counsel is that he does fall under submission to the Lord. So when it says, I took counsel, what he's saying effectually is this, is that God in that moment ruled my heart. God ruled my heart and had dominion over me. And so that is the place from which I'm going to offer wisdom to these people. And that's exactly what he does because God has dealt with him. He's going to act justly. And he says to them in verse 7, you're exacting interest each from his brother. So in, in an economy, in an economic system, I think we're all 
by and large, pretty familiar with the idea of interest, right? You, you, you loan somebody some money, and then if it takes a duration or a period of months or time until they're paid back uh, that amount, typically interest is charged. You and I might read this in a cursory way, just read this and say, well, that, I, don't, I don't see what the big deal is. Like, that's just common economics. In God's economy, this is not to take place. This is not the desire that he has for his people. Um, this would take an inordinate amount of time to read through all these and explain them in context, but I want to give you these three sets of verses. Uh, and so if you're the pen in your hand kind of person, write these down. Um, this is Exodus chapter 22, verses 12 to 17. Leviticus 25, 35 to 54. Deuteronomy 23. 19 through 20. Each of these passages are part of the Torah law, the teaching that exacting interest from your brother is forbidden. It's against God's law. It's against his wisdom. It's against the life that he has given for his people for them to do this. So this isn't an unfounded accusation that Nehemiah is making. This is deeply historical, and they would know this. They would understand this, and they would realize what they're doing is wrong. So you've got this situation where all of these people out of slavery have been brought back. And now, through this exacting of interest and slavery, Israel is treating Israel the way Egypt treated Israel. The way Babylon has treated Israel. This is not God's desire for his people. Look down into verse 9. Or actually, verse 8, and see this. It says, and, uh, he says in verse 7, And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, uh, We, as far as we were able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but even you sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So this is that idea of slavery taking place among them. And then it says, They were silent and could not find a word to say. So verse 8 here, we're getting a picture of what uh, the law of God, the teaching of God does when it confronts us. They didn't have a word to say. In the New Covenant world, where we are on this side of the cross, that's the conviction of God's Spirit. That's how it looks in our life. But that comes by an understanding of the fact that we don't meet the requirements of, we don't live into the life-giving teachings of the law. So when the law confronts us, we recognize that we are sinners that we are broken, that we stand ashamed, and that we stand guilty of not living into the life of the law. So this is what happens because it says this in verse 8, they were silent and could not find a word to say. The law convicts. Now, look at 9. It says, so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Let's start with that. Um, what they're doing is, is not only not, it's not only bad, it's not good. So you and I do this thing in this world where, where we see things as bad or as good, and we, we just speak in a lot of pretty like gross generalities, like things like, oh, well, that's like good, right? Like that, that food is good, right? Or, or that food is bad, right? And, we, and we've made these two giant categories, but they're really malleable, and there's not a whole lot of distinction. Uh, and so when we say things are are not good, we might even think of them as kind of like a purgatory, just in the middle, right? Like, it's, it's, it's just not good. Maybe it's not like crazy bad, but it, it's just not good. That is not 
what the text is seeking to present us with here. And, and you and I, just with, with our English language, we can miss this. Don't miss what this says. He says to them, so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. It's not just, it's, it's not just evil and bad what they're doing, but it's the opposite of the creation expectation that God has given them. So you look back into Genesis and you hear this word good a lot. And here's how you see it in context in Genesis. God creates, and then he looks at it and says it was good. So good is not just a picture of, eh, pretty good. Good is a picture of that which has been created by God's Spirit through him, has been endowed to creation that, that this world would reflect the very glory of God and that the people who partake in these things that are good and the people that have been created themselves created in God's image, are meant to be good. And what they're doing in this moment is the opposite of that. So it's not creation, it's not the reflection of God's goodness, it's the reflection of evil. It's a reflection of destruction. That's why this is not good. It's not just like kind of not good. No, it's not the kind of good that God is and what he creates. So what's the response Nehemiah says this, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? A couple things. Ought, um, it's not just a, hey, you should. It's much more emphatic. It's much more of a you must. This is imperative. For you to understand life, you have to walk in, you have to live in the fear of of God. And what is this fear? We talked about last week, looking back into Nehemiah chapter 4, the construction of the wall, and he gives this charge as all this opposition is coming. And what does he say? He says, do not fear. He says, fear not. This is an Isaiah 43 kind of thing. This is fear not. Don't fear that which is opposed to you. Instead, redirect that fear and let that fear be a fear that now is reverent. It's not afraid in identity, but now it trusts in the perfect identity that comes from the Lord. So Nehemiah's charge to his people, to God's people, is this. Don't fear the attack of others. Instead, fear the Lord. How do you do that? How do you get to that place? Well, he says it very clearly in 4.14. Remember our God who is great and awesome. That fear, that reverence, comes as we remember who God is and what he's done for us. Great and awesome are not, are not just descriptors of God in, in, in a character moment. They are, they're descriptive of his character. But, but Nehemiah has seen this character play out. God's people has, have seen him redeem them to part waters to bring them back out of captivity. All of the incredible things that God has done in his awesomeness, in his grandeur, and then also in his closeness to be with his people. Nehemiah says, don't fear, remember that. This is the fear that we're called to live in, the fear of the Lord, the recognition of his goodness and his grace and mercy. And in that, what you see is that fearing God has a purpose. There, there's, there's an end, there's something that happens as a direct result of trusting in, of remembering the Lord. In verse uh, 9, it's this, to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies. 
that the fear of their God would prevent the taunts of the nations of their enemies. Now, I will confess that you look back into Nehemiah and you see that some of the taunts aren't as aggressive as they are in our day. Right? Like Sambalot talks about how you know, the wall's half built and that if a fox tried to climb up there, he'd fall off. I wouldn't personally be super offended by that. All right? That's not an aggressive taunt. Um, but look, the idea is that fearing the Lord truly prevents the taunts of the nations. How does it do that? The fear of the Lord confounds the mind of those that are against them. How? Because when you live righteously, when you trust the Lord, when you live in a way that is fair and is equitable and you long to meet the needs of others who you find in need, others who are poor, Physically, emotionally, spiritually, where people that are marginalized, when we go to them, when we seek to not look only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, that presents this incredible, confounding image to the world that prevents their taunts because they want that. They want to be loved like that. They want to know that. That's what prevents the taunts of enemies and nations fear of God that looks like this righteous living in such a way that it changes the very fabric of the life and the culture around us. This presents a clear picture that righteous living is the picture to the world of the God that redeems us and transforms us and saves us. That's what prevents the taunts of enemies. And now they desire to be friends. Look, this is not about just rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the wall in the midst of this story. This is not, this is not if you're with me, if you're tracking, I think you're probably coming to see, this actually isn't an interruption in what's going on. It's getting deeper. It's a deeper dive into the picture of what the heart of God's people should be. The heart that he longs for them to have for their lives to be restored and to be renewed. Uh, look into verse 10. And you see what happens here. In the midst of these things, Nehemiah charges them to abandon their practice. And in verse 11, he says this, To return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, all of these things that have been taken, that they've been exacting from them as these forms of interest, he says to return to them, to give it back. Why does he do this? Because he recognizes the truth that's found in Psalm 24.1. The earth and everything in it is the Lord's. So how can you live in a world where you don't exact interest, where you don't take what is rightfully yours? Well, Nehemiah understands truly what is rightfully his, and here's what it is. Nothing. None of it's his. He's just a steward of it. It just belongs to him for a season. It's just entrusted to him. It's not really his. This is a picture of the life that the Christian is called to live. We're called to live in the service of others. We're called to live with these open hands where we don't cling to everything that we think we possess. We think these things are ours. I mean, if you can't take it with you, it can't be yours. That ought to be simple enough, right? But the reality is that even in getting it, God has given it to you. And this is where I would... 
I, I would go on the tangent and say, you would say, no, I look, I worked for everything that I have, and I'm a self-made man, or all the things that I've done, these are, these are my things, and I'm going to give, and I'm going to steward in the way that, that I see fit, but ultimately I want to keep it all because it's mine, and I would say to you this, I would say to you, look, that's incredible that you work for all of these things. Who gave you the breath to breathe and work? Who gave you the life, the blood that courses through your veins so that your heart can pump and operate and your central nervous system works so that you can go and be that successful fill-in-the-blank that you are? The Lord. He's given it to you. And this is what Nehemiah does. This is what he presents, this picture that God owns all and yet we are just stewards of it. And this is the response of the people. When they're taken to task, this is what they say. We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. So they promise to do it. They promise to give it back. And this is a beautiful picture of how life and the gospel works. In the midst of being confronted with their sin, they recognize their brokenness. They recognize their selfishness. And what they do is they give it back. And now this culture, this community, God's people are beginning to experience restoration. And it comes out of the law coming to them to convict them, to help them see their brokenness. And they see God's mercy and his grace. And they say, look, we're going to give these things back. And the community is restored. Look into verse 14. Uh, you see this. Um, Nehemiah doesn't use his position or his statue, uh, or stature rather, as governor to benefit himself. Verse 14 says this, uh, that he was the governor of the land of Judah, so the Judah and, and Jerusalem that is within it, uh, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, so 12 years. And it says this, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. So he didn't take the equality that he had with the king in many ways, Right? As something to be grasped. He doesn't like clutch onto it and say, you don't understand who I am. I'm this incredible person. I have this role. I have this, this gift of, of this place in the world. And so I'm going to take these things and benefit myself. No, instead, he doesn't do it in a way that's unequitable. We're going to see verse, in verse 16 that he lives among the people. Look at verse 15. The former governors, he, he says... Um, put heavy burdens on the people, and they took money from them, um, their daily rations. So they're given the opportunity to do this. Nehemiah has the opportunity to do this. He can take advantage of people because of the position that he has, and he doesn't lord over the people. Why? Look at what verse 15 says. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. So he doesn't need these earthly things to comfort him, to give him identity, because he has identity within God. So he could have lorded over these people, and he could have tried to take this identity from all of these things that he has. And if you look down into verse 18, which we read, the, the one ox, the six choice sheep, the birds, the uh, ten days of all kinds of wine in abundance, he didn't take all of these things... Because identity, his identity is not based on what he has. His identity is based on who God says he is. That's the character that we see in Nehemiah. That's who you and I should be in Christ. We're not what we drive or where we live or what our bank account says or what our credit score is or what assets we have, physical or otherwise. Equities, bonds, stocks, it doesn't matter. Those things are not who you are. 
the place that you're in. You may be in a place of stature or privilege or people look to you and you may be the guy with the perks in your office or the lady with the perks in your office or whatever. The reality is that's not where your identity is meant to be. Your identity is meant to be in who God says you are. And if you've trusted Jesus Christ, then God says you are his son, his daughter, in whom he's well pleased. And that defines you. That is who you are. Look at verse 16. He chooses to work alongside the people. I persevered in the work, and we acquired no land, uh, and all my servants were gathered there for work. So he works with the people, and the servants that he's with, they're gathered there, but he is with them. And it says he acquired no land. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. Even Nehemiah has no place to lay his head. This guy's not a guy who is trying to grasp at to get the things of the world. Instead, he's longing to follow after the Lord. In verse 18 and verse 19, as we wrap up, 18 shows his deep care for the people. Uh, he had all those things. And he says, yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. He cares about the people that are in his charge. These people are people that he seeks to serve alongside with uh, as, as part of God's people. Um, and then look at verse 19. Uh, if we read this in a cursory way, it sounds, I, to be very candid, if I just read this once or twice, just kind of give it the once over, it, it's, it seems pretty conceited. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. Hey, I've done a lot. Don't forget it, all right? Nehemiah is the guy who's praying these prayers of, of remembrance in chapter 1 that, that he's quoting scripture back to the Lord. He's saying, hey, look, Lord, don't forget what I've done in, in our world, in our vernacular, that could sound really conceited. But here's what you need to see. This is not a prayer of conceit. It's a prayer of confession. He's saying, God, I implore you to see that I've sought to love you and to love your people. That's what's happening in this moment. So now you get this picture that in a very old covenant manner, you're really seeing the greatest commandment lived out through the life of Nehemiah. He's seeking to love God and to love his neighbor. He's seeking to love and care for the marginalized. And now we see that this story is not this interruption in the middle of a wall-building chronicle. Instead, it's the picture of God's people and what the charge is, what the call is for us to live in such a way that we would meet the needs of those who are poor, to meet the needs of those who are hungry, to meet the needs of those who are in any kind of need, not just physical, but emotional and spiritual as well. Um, I, I want us to leave with three questions uh, today, um, a couple of questions to walk away with. One is this, where do we find our identity? Where do you and I find our identity? Is it in your position? Is it in the amount of money that you have amassed or you are longing to amass? Is your identity improperly placed in your, your, your spouse or your children? Are you living vicariously through them in certain ways because you, because you don't feel valued and, and, and loved? No, look, our identity is meant to be truly in the Lord. That the greatest thing that we could, we could understand, that we could grasp, that would change our lives if we believe this gospel. If we believe the gospel, then this is what we know. That God has so greatly lavished his love upon us that we should be called children of God. 
that that's who you and I are. That that's the goodness that we're meant to embrace. So where do we find our identity? Here's the second thing. How can we leverage what we have for others? How can we leverage what we have for others? How can we give of ourselves to meet the needs of others in various ways? How can we give our lives away to people? What does that look like for us? Where are we seeking to give, not just financially, but with our time, with our energy, with our emotional bandwidth to, to be there for somebody who, who, who needs a friend, to care for someone who's in a rough spot? Look, we want to be people that give. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. We want to be people who give. I mean, we're, like we start the service today talking about and updating a, a multiply campaign, this incredible thing that God has done. There are these people, y'all, some of whom you will never meet. You'll never meet them. You won't meet them. You won't know them. They're like four miles that way. They're worshiping the exact same time as we are, and they've pumped a ton of, of money and love and care into this place so that you and I can experience the gospel and so that we can go give it away to others. That's happening because God's gospel came to them. And it came to them on the way to us and on the way to us to somebody else. This is an incredible thing. We want to be people who give. Look, I want us to grow as a church in giving. I want us to grow as a church in giving. And here's what I, here's what I would say. And I would, I'll get crushed by, by this from just a number of people who I would know or pastors or would say, like, hey, this is a bad idea. Like, don't do this. You need to have, like, some sort of marker for everybody. So, like, maybe it's, like, 10% or whatever. You should have that marker. Here's the reality. That's, that's not a prescription in the New Testament. That's not a prescription of Scripture for what we should give. All right? This is what Paul would say. Don't give begrudgingly. So don't give what you don't want to give. And don't give out of compulsion. Don't give because you're made to feel guilty. Give because you recognize that everything that you have comes from the Lord. If you and I awaken unto that, if the Lord transforms our heart in that, giving ain't going to be our problem. And people's needs are going to be met. People who need food are going to have food. And people who need a friend are going to have a friend. And people who need Jesus are going to hear the gospel. If that's who we are. God, have mercy on us and let us be those kind of people. Because look, at the end of the day, I'm greedy and you are too. I don't like saying that out loud. It's super not fun. Now I've said it on this thing that's a podcast and it's in perpetuity, right? So I'm greedy forever. But here's the reality. I'm scared to live life with an open hand. What if I give away that thing and it never comes back? Anybody, does that resonate with you? Yeah, I know it does. It's hard to live that way, but you and I need to trust the Lord. And we need to be people that live lives with open hands. Where we recognize that God is the giver of all good things. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. Um, here's the next thing. Do we recognize the poor in our midst? And I mean it in all three ways. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. Do we recognize the poor? People who are marginalized, people who have need. This is why we have something like Give United. So we give to these organizations like the Foundry, like Alabama Childhood Food Solutions, uh, like Blanket Fort Hope, like a number of these things that are, are equipped to help meet the needs of those who are hungry. 
to help meet the needs of those people who are in deep physical needs. What does Jesus say about the poor? What does the New Testament say about the poor? Look at this. This is 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, and it says this. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. Look at this question. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. we got to be people that love in deed. Uh, look at this next scripture. This is Romans 12, 13. This is about you and me. So not infighting as the, as the Jews were at this time and seeking to work against one another, but contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We ought to be meeting the needs of one another and being hospitable to one another. 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Because all that stuff we think we have is uncertain. All of it. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, it's all His. They are to do good, so they're to reflect the goodness that God gives us in creation. To be rich in good works. Paul would say it this way in Ephesians, that, that we've been, there's good works that have been prepared for us to do. To be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Life is Jesus Christ, to know Him. And then Acts 20, 35 in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Are we going to be people that seek to minister to those around us? Are we going to be people that look for the poor among us? Because here's the reality. Um, I think I, I sit in a room with a number of people who would not be considered poor, not by a long stretch, by the world standards. But here's how we get to that place, and here's how we can identify with that. You are or have been poor in spirit. You know what it means to be spiritually poor. And I know that because I know you're a sinner, and I am too. And we've been in deep need. And not just deep need, but just dead, lifeless, without hope, and yet Christ has come to us. That spiritual life, that resurrection life that we've been given, that ought to implore us like no other thing to go and give life to people, to go and meet needs. How are we doing that? Well, it starts with knowing where our identity comes from, and it's in Christ and not this world. And not the things that we have. And then we begin to see these, these things as gifts. And these things that, that we don't have to hold on to for our identity. So now we can give it away. Now I don't have to worry about being greedy. I get to go give it away. I get to go live out the gospel. Because here is what charity is. Here's what a multiply campaign and all the things that we're doing as a church were meant to be about. Here's what we long to be. We're not going to do it perfectly, and I'll never say that we will. But we long to do this. We long to be people that live in gospel demonstration. That we're giving our lives away to demonstrate, to show the gospel that we have. To prevent the taunts of our enemies and ultimately so that those enemies would become friends in the gospel. And that we would meet the needs of a broken and hurting world around us. Um, all right, here's what we're going to do. This is super, super fun. Uh, and I think maybe this is the first day that I can remember in a long time when it hasn't rained. And I'm really excited about that fact, okay? 
Um, here's how we're going to celebrate. Um, my good friend Maddox is going to be baptized here in a moment. Uh, so I'm going to ask the, the Pate family. They're going to walk out, and Maddox uh, is going to uh, get in a baptism robe. Normally, you see this, and folks will come this way. Um, and because we have communion set up, and it's such a lovely day, we're actually going to have the baptism outside today. Um, so I think this is going to be a ton of fun. And for those of you that have really struggled toward the end of this sermon, and I'm with you because I've slept through a ton of folks as well, um, this is going to wake you up a little bit, all right? Because here's what we're going to do. We're going uh, to let Maddox change, uh, and, and we're going to pray together. In a moment, we're all going to stand up, uh, and we're going to walk outside, and we're going to stand in that courtyard right there and celebrate Maddox being baptized, celebrate him trusting Christ for salvation. Uh, and then, in the midst of seeing that, that beautiful picture of, of being buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life, that picture which should give you comfort and encourage you and remind you uh, of your experience of coming to know Jesus Christ, and the fact that, that your sins are dead and have been, and have been, have been buried, and, and yet now you live and experience this resurrection life, after you see that, you get the opportunity to come and we get to serve uh, the Lord's Supper. We get to experience that in a very tangible way for ourselves, a day where we get to celebrate both of these beautiful ordinances that God has given us. Uh, so I'm incredibly excited about this. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to pray, and then we're just going to stand up, and we're going to walk out directly out these doors into the courtyard uh, and watch Maddox be baptized and participate in that by celebrating with him as we remember our God who is great and awesome. Uh, and then we're going to like make sure you don't sneak off and you're all going to walk back in here and we're going to get to celebrate and experience the Lord's Supper together. Sound like a plan? All right. Really encouraged and excited to worship in this way with you this morning. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so deeply excited about the fact um, th that in our brokenness, when we were poor in spirit, by, by your spirit, by your Holy Spirit, you convicted us. You helped us see our brokenness, and you helped us recognize that we have a need for a Savior. And in that moment, we came to understand the truth of the gospel, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we, as Maddox will confess in a moment that, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. And that that gospel is the power of salvation that we've been able to experience and taste. Um, and we get to celebrate that today, Lord, so I'm thankful. Um, God, would you make us people who long to minister that truth, that love, that goodness um, to those around us, to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our coworkers. God, may the world around us see the goodness that you have done for us. And would we remember that? In Jesus' name, amen.